every government has a cyber arm that work uh, with different nation states. It's really hard to put a, a limit on where things start or, or end. <laughs> when I say the word hacker, what do you imagine? What do you see? Most of us picture a guy in a gray hoodie, face hidden in the shadow, hunched over his computer keyboard and just typing like crazy. And you may be thinking, ah, hacker schmackers. I mean, if they hacked me, my bank account, they'd probably feel sorry for me and maybe set up a GoFundMe. Mm, Nah, they'd steal from you anyway. Maybe just using your bandwidth for a DDoS attack. You may already know that not all hackers are lone wolves. Many of them hunt in packs. Sometimes powerful politicians pay them to digitally attack rival nations. These are called nation-state actors. That's what we call government-funded hackers. They're the shadowy cybercrime gangs who meddle in affairs beyond countries' borders. Well, let's take a look at how this affects you. I want you to remember that you play a big role in this story, and don't think it doesn't matter. It's easy to just sit back and think of yourself as a small fish in a big pond. You may think that you're just going to fly under the radar. After all, governments are fighting in cyberspace. There's nothing you can do, right? Mm, Wrong. There's a lot you can do to fight back against the gangs of hackers sponsored by foreign governments. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're going to start with ransomware. These foreign cyber criminals, they love this method of stealing and locking down files. And a lot of Americans do get hurt. Ransomware attacks one out of every five Americans. Think of your family. Someone in your life is going to go toe-to-toe with ransomware. Hackers get away with this stuff because, well, they ransomware. All right, that was bad. All right, cyber criminals can clear out your bank accounts by saying if you don't pay up, you just won't get your files back. Or worse, they could just sell everything online if you don't pay up. It's hard to emphasize just how easy it is for cyber criminals to steal data. All of your documents, your important files, along with getting complete access to, say, your banking and financial accounts. Let me give you a number instead. Cybercrime will cost the world $10.5 trillion, that's with a T, every year by 2025. That's big money. And that's why the issue is widespread. And it's not getting any better. It's actually getting worse. So you need to prepare yourself. So when, not if, malware hits you, you can hit back. Malware increased by 358% in 2020. Can you believe that? Since this is such a big issue, I brought in the big guns to match. In this podcast, I'm sitting down with Itai Mayor. He's our go-to guy for cybersecurity. He's well-known in the industry, and he knows all about cyber terrorism, from the big threats, ransomware, to smaller scares that you've never heard about. And after the break, he's going to teach us how to defend our accounts like a pro. You know, I once got scammed by a hacker from Cairo. I guess you could say I was Egypt. <laughs> uh, I promise they'll get back. Hey, once this episode is over, you're going to have solid steps to take. You're going to follow my advice and Etai's advice, and you're sure to have stronger protection than ever before. So stick around. We just have to say a few words to thank our sponsors in this podcast because they make it possible. Welcome back to Kim Commando Explains. It's an amazing podcast. Today we're talking about the well-organized groups of hackers that are backed by governments and the ways that they're out to get you and your money. So joining us here for Kim Commando Explains is Itai Moore. Itai, what exactly is your title? 
So I'm the uh, Senior Director for Security Strategy at Cato Networks. Thank you for having me. And we're going to be talking today about nation-state cybercrime gangs. How would you define nation-state cybercriminal gangs? So it's actually a mix. There are several things. It's, and it's interesting because it's also really hard to define, and I'll, I'll explain. You have nation-state actors. Uh, and those are uh, different threat actors uh, working for a specific government. And, you know, let's be frank about it. Every government has a, a cyber arm. Um, and what you also have in some cases is different proxies or threat actors that work uh, with different nation states. So it, it's, you know, in the age of Internet, it's really hard to put a, a limit on where things start or or end. <laughs> and that's a really great point, Itai. Are we talking about nations more than just Russia? Every nation state has a cyber arm. It's not just Air Force, Marines, and, and, and you know, Navy. If It's a strategic initiative by every country. If you haven't been doing this, then you're lagging far behind. So I actually can't think of a specific, any specific country that does not have or employ cybersecurity experts as part of their overall defense and offense strategy. Well, honestly, I can't think of a country that is not involved. I mean, that does not have uh, a cyber arm. Um, this is a strategic initiative by any country. It, you can't really, it, with the current arms race and, and conflict that you have, cyber is just another arm, just like the Air Force, uh, Navy, uh, and Army. You, you have to have cyber security, cyber capabilities. And so every country has, has their hand in it. And that's a really great thing to remember, that it's just not the Air Force, the Army, the Marines, the Coast Guard, and the Space Force, that now we have, we need to have a cyber crime force because everything that, all the attacks that are happening on the internet. Can you give us an example of a nation state cyber crime that happened recently? Well, um, recent attacks, uh, we have seen several groups from different uh, countries use um, vulnerabilities, even actually it's interesting, in, in security systems to gain access into um, other countries uh, and other countries' security, uh, uh, security controls and, and security databases, government installations. These things, though, are, are nothing new. You know, we talk a lot more about it now because there's more visibility, but you can go back more than a decade back, and you will see things that were actually performed by nation-state threat actors. Uh, if you recall, for example, the hack into RSA, the attack into uh, into the Sony network, uh, those were all uh, propagated or, or done by nation-states. So it's, it's really nothing new. It's just getting a lot more uh, attention now. And... I think it's another, another thing to keep in mind also is you have some nation states that don't just attack the other nation's government, but also other infrastructures. Uh, of course, critical infrastructure and banking goes along with it. Um, but, I mean, there's other elements uh, that they target. For example, we know of North Korean nation state actors that perform pure cybercrime because, well, because they want the money. They need the money. And how do they get the money? Well, these, these attacks happen. A lot of people think, you know, when you think about nation state, you think about really advanced systems. And you might right. have heard of terms like, you know, zero days and vulnerabilities and exploits. But the truth of the matter is they use, in many cases, at least at the beginning of the attack, very simple techniques. Because what is the first stage of every large breach? It's getting a foothold into a, a network, into a system. And usually that's done by attacking the human. So phishing attacks, 
uh, impersonation, um, all kinds of things, social networks that would allow them to actually attack the human who will then give them unknowingly, of course, access into the networks. So they actually use techniques that are not all that complicated. So it gets down into a phishing spam message or maybe a malicious URL or uh, maybe some malware? So, yes. So you actually named several of them, right? Phishing attacks is, is, is one way. A weaponized email, so something like an attachment with a piece of malware in it. But we've also seen some of them, and by the way, very recently also, um, use things like LinkedIn. So invitations over on LinkedIn to connect and provide you with a file. I, I actually was a target of a similar attack. I don't know if it was a nation state, but somebody who approached me pretending to be a recruiter, and they had a really amazing offer for me, and I just need to see, to open the PDF, and I'll see, uh, you know, the amazing offer that the, this company is offering me to go work for them. And that was a weaponized PDF. So they also use, use uh, LinkedIn and, and social networks, Facebook as well, in order to get in touch with their target because that environment is not your business environment. It's, it's your, you know, personal environment. And you, your guard might be a little bit more down than you would if you would receive it on your, you know, business email or corporate account. It, you know, that's really shrewd because you're on LinkedIn and you're on there because of your career and your networking and you're look, looking for competitive advantages and you're seeing what your peers are doing and what your other companies are doing. And to, to get a message from a recruiter is not all that unusual. It just shows that they're taking social engineering to a whole new level. Yeah, and there's a very famous case of an attack by actually by a, an Iranian threat actor, a specific group that has used that same technique multiple times. In that case, they used a persona called Mia Ash uh, several years ago, and using that persona, she pretended to be a photographer. She got in touch with very specific individuals. In this case, they were targeting the oil industry in the Middle East. And after getting becoming friends with them, she sent them a PDF saying, you know, I have a new uh, photography album coming out. I really value your opinion. Can you please tell me what you think about it? So really using emotional stuff as well. And some people clicked on it, and that deployed a RAT, a remote access tool, onto the, the uh, networks of these oil, oil facilities, and that's how the Iranians got a foothold in there. So they use these, these techniques in order to, to gain access through, you know, emotional response uh, from their victims. And But you mentioned something that's really interesting in both of these examples, that it was an infected PDF file. I don't think a lot of people realize that we send and receive so many PDFs every single day in so many different businesses that it could actually be a tool, right? Yeah, and, and they know this, and that, that's what they, they try to do. Now, we do have tools in place in order to stop these things, uh, all kinds of antivirus, anti-malware, sandboxes. But some of the more sophisticated threat actors know how to bypass some of these security controls. So we always need to remain vigilant and ask ourselves, does this, does this really make sense? Um, the next step uh, can be a little bit even more proactive. For example, in the case where I was targeted, the picture of the person who was sending me the PDF looked a little bit suspicious to me. So I looked for it on the Internet and I found it came from a stock photo, which immediately raised an alert for me because why would a recruiter use a stock photo as their personal photo? So we really need to take a look into these things and make sure that we you know, remain vigilant. On, on the one hand, there's that side of things. On the other side is 
You know, we live in an age of oversharing. People love to share information out there. And just because somebody is approaching you, knowing something about you, or, you know, talking about something that's related to a personal experience, doesn't mean they really know you. Um, you know, we share these things on Facebook, LinkedIn, and the attackers look for this. They collect it. It's called open source intelligence. Just like there's, you know, electronic intelligence, human intelligence, there's open source intelligence. It's free intelligence for the attackers, downright to, you know, you can find people's signatures because they're online, they're, they're out there, and you can find them. So just because somebody claims to know you or have something that, you know, you may have as well, does not mean they're really, they're really who they claim to be. And, and that's really key, is that everybody needs to remain diligent, use some common sense, and realize that there are threat actors on multiple levels. I mean, it's not just with a nation state. They should be, they could be coming after you, your business, uh, your your personal wealth, whatever it may be, is that you always have to have your guard up. Let's go back to LinkedIn for just a second. So you get this message. It looks like a recruiter. It has this stock photo image of this beautiful woman. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, now I know that it's a total scam. Is there anything else going on that we need to be aware of? Yeah, one thing that we need to keep in mind uh, is we may not be the actual final target because people a lot of times say to me, oh, you know, who cares? So you become friends with somebody on LinkedIn, big deal. Even they'll send me a file, I won't open it. So what's the big deal? There's no risk there. And you have to keep in mind that you may not be the target of the attacker. For example, if somebody wants to attack my boss and my boss is a very suspicious person by, by, by nature, they may actually become first friends with me on LinkedIn and not do anything malicious. But then they will try to become friends or send a message to my boss. Now my boss will take a look at their profile and see, oh, Itai is connected. I trust Itai, and so I'll trust this person. And that's how they get there. So we have to keep in mind, even though it may not, it may be targeting me, I might not be the actual target. This is all fascinating stuff. Well, Itai, you mentioned how easy it is to get signatures. And I understand that you did some homework on me. So when we come right back, we're going to talk more about signatures, how you can see what's available about you online. So stay right where you are, because we have to say a special thank you to our partners in this podcast. Hey, welcome back to Kim Commando Explains. We're in a great conversation with Itai Morera, and we're talking about nation site cybercrime, what's happening with phishing and malware-related incidents and malicious URLs and, and hacking incidents and data breaches, all really, really big topics. But Itai, you sent an email with my real signature. What was up with that? So I think it's really important to understand that while we're talking about digital information, there is also access to, um, I would say, real-world type of uh, artifacts like signatures. And I have to tell you, it, sh- it shocked me when I first saw it. Uh, I didn't know, for example, that in the U.S., the deeds registry is a publicly available and open database. And so without any hacking involved, without any, uh, uh, any breaches or anything, anybody can just go to the deeds registry and pull out all kinds of documents from uh, loans and mortgages to other documents that have been signed, and you can just get people's signatures. Now, what's really interesting is this can be used in so many ways. I teach a course in, in BC in Boston College here, and my students showed me after I taught them how to do this that they were able to obtain the signatures of VPs 
in one of the pharmaceutical companies that is manufacturing uh, COVID vaccines. Wow. Now, how interesting is that to, to have that signature at your dispense now and, and, you know, play around with that if you're in an attacker? Not that I suggest anybody does that, of course, but we have to be aware that this is, this is, this is not something very difficult to do. It'd just be a matter of cutting out their real signature, pasting it on a document, putting it in a PDF and sending it out and who knows what, right? Yeah, I mean, we hear about these types of attacks a lot, business email compromise attacks where somebody's impersonating uh, an executive in a company and is asking somebody in the uh, financial group to send money. Having a signature would really help with, with these uh, types of attacks. So it really helps them create this. And as you mentioned, it doesn't take a lot of effort. I mean, even me with my very limited Photoshop <laughs> skills, doing something like that is easy. Well, you know, there are so many sites now that you can go to and you can type in somebody's name. Uh, FamilyTreeNow.com. Uh, also, Cyber Background Checks, that's with an S, dot uh, com. And, and these sites seem to pop up, Itai, because they get a lot of traffic because everybody's always looking for dirt on somebody else. And then over time, they they start paying and they start asking for subscriptions and things like that. But but I've been astounded by the amount of information that is free for the taking. Uh, Like, for example, on one of these particular websites, they had every address that I've ever lived at. And I'm like, I didn't even remember having that apartment for three months in Scottsdale, Arizona. But yet there it was. uh, People that were related to me. And the the amount of information was alarmingly correct it's it's interesting you mentioned that because in a, in an interview with a ransomware gang from russia actually recently um they actually talked to, to a reporter who who asked them questions about their business and one of the things they mentioned is how to avoid being targeted by them and one of the things they mentioned is that kba knowledge-based authentication so those systems that ask you questions like mother's maiden name or where did you live or what was the color of your car they said those are obsolete they're they're the easiest for them to overcome because the information is already out there and they actually say don't use knowledge-based authentication to try and get us out of your networks it's not going to be it's not going to work so what should you use well, we have multiple layers in order to uh, avoid being targeted by them. And it starts, well, the first thing is have the mindset of, you know, be suspicious and ask questions and, you know, just remain vigilant. But, of course, if you have enough, uh, uh, the uh, option to use, um, and we're talking about multi-layers of security, but things like a VPN for privacy, if you can use multi-factor authentication uh, for authentication, there's things that, uh, of course, keep your system patched and up to date. Don't, don't, give, don't be the lower hanging fruit by having a system that's old and, and unpatched. And, of course, you should work with companies and service providers that have security on their end as well. You know, when I will go into a website, I want to make sure that they have things on their end to detect attackers who may try to impersonate me because somebody may be successful in stealing my username and password. I want them to make sure that if somebody uses that username and password, they know that it's not me. They need to be able to say things like, well, Itai usually logs into our website from a Boston-based IP between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. All of a sudden, we see a Ukrainian IP at 3 in the morning with the real username and password. Something doesn't make sense here. So there have to be also security solutions on the provider side to avoid these types of attacks. So if you could take out your crystal ball, Itai, 
and project where the security attacks and how we would be vulnerable, say, uh, 18 to 24 months from now. What do you see? Well, I think attackers are getting better at overcoming different security solutions. Um, And the types of systems that they're targeting um, is somewhere between research to very opportunistic. I have to, I'll be honest, if you would have asked me this 10 years ago, I would not have imagined that cyber criminals would target, for example, hospitals or the D.C. police department with ransomware attacks. I, I wouldn't think they'd be so brazen and successful in doing these things. I think right now the situation is almost limitless, I would say, especially because we're bringing more and more devices into our environment with the Internet of Things and everything around us. Uh, is becoming uh, a part of an uh, is will be part of a network with 5G, which will make that even easier. I think there's almost no limiting to where they can where they can go with this. And so uh, I know it's kind of like a catch-all, but the sky really is is uh, the limit for them. It's especially frightening, Itai, when I look at all the deep fake technology and what's readily available to anybody on the dark web with not just of authenticating somebody's face, but also their voice, their mannerisms. I, I see that as a real potential red herring that's coming down the pike. Oh, yes. Dip fakes is, is something that's constantly evolving. And I recently had a chat actually with uh, uh, Raymond from Deep Fake AI, uh, who's, who's amazing in, in these things. It's really interesting to see how it's evolving, becoming both easier technology-wise, you don't need the supercomputers and special software to do these things. But like you said, for me, seeing is believing, right? So if I see somebody talking on a video, then I believe it. Uh, so it's become really hard to, to tell, you know, what is true, what is not. And you combine that with the cybercrime, getting, you know, a voice message or a Zoom, somebody saying something to you and you, be- you believe it's really that person. It's really hard to, to uh, detect these things. But there's also the flip side to that, which I think is as equally as important, um, and that's the, the the liar's dividend. Now people who are not saying the truth can claim, hey, you know, I didn't say that on that video. That was a deepfake of me. <laughs> so there's the other side of deepfakes now that, that people are going to take advantage of, you know, and I can see that happening as well. Yeah. You know, I've asked so many people who are involved in deepfake. I mean, is there like a telltale sign that when you see a video, I mean, it's like one eye not tracking the same as the other eye or is uh, one side of the face totally off and if you looked really closely could you see it and i'll tell you Itai, everybody that i've asked it's like nope not really can't tell I'm like thank you i mean there's got to be some way to tell do you know a way so there are companies who are trying uh, to do this but honestly the the creation technology is, is is far ahead of the detection technology so while for example in pictures i sometimes uh, play online there's there's like a website called is this face real or not or which face is real.com i think something like that and you can see sometimes glitches in in the ear area and sometimes um in some hair and and the chin area but those are still photos those are not videos Videos are very hard to identify, and there's some advanced technology to try and detect the ones which are fake. But, again, the attackers are, are far 
far or the the creation is far more advanced right now than the detection. And yeah, we're going to hit a real problem when when attackers start using that. And by the way, it's already been used for cybercrime. Uh, there was a deep fake uh, tool used for uh, voice uh, synthesis where somebody uh, just, just took uh, five minutes, I believe it is all that needed, of somebody talking. So you could synthesize my voice from this interview and create a call using it. So somebody used that, synthesized uh, a bank employee's voice and uh, made it out with a transaction. Yeah, that's really especially frightening because if you were getting a call from your boss to say, hey, I need you to go pay this vendor $100,000 mm-hmm. and it sounds like your boss and it is your boss. So you think you're not going to tell him or her like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't think I'm going to do that. So it just goes to the point that you need to authenticate and make sure that anything that you do online is truly what it is. And it's, you know, it's it's really hard to live that way, though. It really is. I mean, because, you know, suddenly you're good, like, you know, you're the doubting George anytime you look at anything. Yeah, exactly. When you can't agree on what the truth is, it's, it's really difficult. And one of the next evolutions where that I talked with Raymond about is the real-time deepfakes. So there's, there was already a version of it of somebody who impersonated uh, Elon Musk on a Zoom uh, call. But what happens once they are capable, the technology reaches the point where you can do it live? So it's not even recorded or anything like that because somebody joins a live webinar or a live session and it's it's completely deepfake. That's... That's going to be interesting to deal with. I just hope that if somebody ever does a deep fake of me, that it's always for good, not for bad, which, <laughs> uh, gosh, who knows where that is. Hey, we're talking to Itai Mora. He's really big in the cybersecurity world. And coming right back, we've got some more tips and tricks that you don't want to miss about keeping you and your family safe here on Kim Commando Explains. Welcome back to Kim Commando Explains. We're talking about cybercrime and hacking and ransomware. You know, and speaking of ransomware, you know, it doesn't seem like we hear so much of it happening with individuals anymore. It seems to be with cities and schools and hospitals. Are you seeing that trend or are they still going after individuals? No, you're right. Uh, it, it used to be individuals, uh, I'd say, from 2015. Actually, you know, I researched it. Their first ransomware attack was in uh, 1989. I didn't even know about it. 1989? Um, really? Wow. Yeah. Yes. It was called the, I think it was called the AIDS virus. Uh, that was the nickname that was given to it, to it. And then it resurfaced in 2015, targeting individuals. And now, like you said, yes, it's it's actually targeting mostly uh, organizations. What's what's also really interesting about what they're doing right now, they're they're threatening their victims. These organizations, they're saying, you know what, what you're going to pay us is nothing compared to what you're going to pay uh, regulators. Because if we spill the information uh, about what we collected about you, you're going to have things like uh, GDPR and different. You know, it could be HIPAA compliance issues. You're going to pay way more. So you better just, you know ended by paying us the ransom we want and not get you into that type of trouble. It's interesting because our business insurance came up for renewal last month and I went to our IT geniuses and I said, you know, we are protected against ransomware and now the premiums are increasing by a lot, uh, probably because of all the companies that have been hit by ransomware. You know, and we have certain precautions in place, uh, certain systems and you know they felt pretty confident that we wouldn't be hit by ransomware but is there one thing that organizations have to do to make sure 
that they don't get hit by ransomware? Is there, is there like the one most important thing that that a lot of companies make mistakes along the way and then that causes the ability for these cyber criminals and bad actors to get in? I would say uh, I'd say two things on, are, are equal. Uh, number one would be, you know, the human element. Train everybody to be aware of this. Try not to click on links or anything that may be suspicious. But the other portion is, uh, you know, patch your systems. Attackers look for vulnerabilities and exploit vulnerabilities in systems that are unpatched and are a little bit old or something that's known to have uh, a vulnerability. So make sure that you patch these systems. Frank Abagnale, if you remember the movie Catch Me If You Can, so the real cat, Frank Abagnale, uh, who's working for the FBI, in one of his talks, he said something I really like. He said every, every uh, breach that he's ever investigated started because one of two reasons. Either somebody did something they shouldn't have or somebody didn't do something they should have. <laughs> so somebody who did something they shouldn't have is the person who clicks on, an, on a phishing email or, or, or on a file. And doing something or not doing something you should have is patching your system, making sure everything is up to date, you know, not using the same password over and over again. So it always boils back to these two elements, which are the human element. And so somehow we need to have technology involved to help the human element get to the next stage. Uh, how far away do you think we are from true biometric identification instead of having to say password has to be 12 characters with a symbol mm-hmm. and a period and a gang sign, a hieroglyphic symbol, whatever it may be? How far away do you think we are from biometric? Well, we already have the capabilities for biometrics. I'll tell you the problem that with biometrics is um, criminals can still use social engineering techniques to overcome them, but biometrics are there. What's really interesting is there is something called behavioral biometrics that is used, I know, by financial institutions and different companies where they look at how you are interacting with the website. For example, how are you moving your mouse? Is it the same speed? You know, How are you clicking? Which menus do you go to and how fast are you going there? So they try to learn your patterns and then make sure that if somebody accesses those systems, if it's not you, then they know it's an imposter is trying to use that you know account or whatever it is. But there's also an element of privacy because there is an opportunity to create more 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 easier authentication without passwords, but it might come on uh, instead of privacy. What do I mean? We talked about IoT before and devices that are around us. These devices can authenticate us. If I'm driving a car, for example, a smart car, imagine that was connected to this database that says Itai is driving now, and all of a sudden, the bank, my bank sees me logging to my account. They can say, wait, wait, that, that doesn't make sense. How is Itai driving and accessing his bank account and typing at the same time? Um, so we have all these sensors around us that know where we are and what are we doing. We can use that to authenticate. The question is, do we want to give away the privacy? <laughs> Yeah, that barn door has been open for a long time, and <laughs> and people are you know now looking at big tech after being on Facebook for ten years and sharing everything under the sun, saying, "Hmm, maybe that wasn't such a good idea." So now we want to clamp down a little bit. But it's an interesting thought that if you were able to tie all these individual factors together to develop one main profile, it'd be a lot more than say, for example, signing into your Fidelity account in a new city, and then them saying, hmm, this doesn't look like Boston, Itai, so what the heck are you doing? And it's going to take a while before all that comes into play. What do you think, like five years, ten years? 
Um, I think these things a lot of times come faster than, than we anticipate. So I would go with the, the, the faster of the two options. Um, also, you know, privacy versus usability. Some people will say, you know what, I don't care. It's just it makes my life easier. I can't tell you how many times. Uh, me and, and, and my people in my house, uh, without naming my wife specifically, <laughs> have been forced to change passwords because we, we forgot them. So sometimes you may say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with the loss of privacy. And, and you said something correct. You know, we've been sharing so much information. In fact, if you have a, you know, a smartphone with you, you're already giving probably so much information you, you were not aware of. So uh, where does it start and end? Now, I, I personally don't believe in the if you have nothing to hide, then you, you, know, you shouldn't be worried because everybody deserves uh, uh, their own privacy. But we always get back to this. That's why I don't even like to call it security. I like to call it risk management. How much do you want to be secure versus how usable is the system that you're, you're interacting with? Lita, you're always such a fountain of knowledge. You really are. I so enjoy our conversations because they're enlightening, they're informative. And I always feel like, you know, we walk away with some good points that people can use as they move forward. And I guess the overriding thought right now is to make sure that you always practice, as you say, good risk management and keep your passwords up to date and your systems up to date and your operating systems up to date. And always be looking over your shoulder because that cybercrime gang could be hanging out there, huh? They are. They're searching for the opportunity. So just don't be the lower hanging fruit for them. Do the basic stuff and and make sure that you are not the target they're going after. Itai, thanks for being here. You're great. Thank you for having me. Identity theft spiked during the pandemic. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission got 1.4 million reports of identity theft last year. That's twice as many cases as 2019. And the problem is is that it's not getting better. It's actually getting worse. There's so much money to make from cybercrime. The bad guys have no incentive to stop. Every minute, cybercriminals steal about $3 million. Wow. That data is from RiskIQ.com. Plus, top companies waste about $25 a minute dealing with cybersecurity breaches. And speaking of companies, don't think for a moment that your work computer is safe and maybe your job gave you a laptop to take home during the pandemic. Don't use it for fun. I know it's convenient. It's there. It's better than your old one. But think of all the data that you have on there and you realize you can't trust your company to protect itself when you're not there. The Global Data Risk Report says only 5% of company folders are properly protected. What that means is that somebody could get into your computer and get whatever's in that folder. If a criminal slips through your company's defenses that they put on a laptop, that could be worse. It could infect your home internet, even all your other devices on the internet. All right, let me leave you with this. Why do hackers celebrate Christmas on Halloween? Why do hackers celebrate Christmas on Halloween? Because October 31st equals December 25th. That's a nerdy math joke. Just Google it and you'll figure it all out. Again, why do hackers celebrate Christmas on Halloween? Because October 31st equals December 25th. And if you could figure it out, leave me a thumbs up. That'll be just something between you and me. You know how like Carol Burnett in the old days used to like twitch her ear or something like that for her mother. So if you go onto my at Kim Commando Twitter account and give me a thumbs up, I know just between us that you solved the nerdy math problem. 
And a reminder to join me on all my social media, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, LinkedIn, Instagram, all have the same handle, at Kim Commando. Be sure to subscribe or follow wherever you get our podcasts and give us a great review and say a few kind words because that means a lot to all of us here at the Kim Commando Show. And thanks for listening.